Okay, three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Uh, it's Thursday night. Well, actually, that's not true anymore. It is now Friday, February 7th. It is 1.25 in the morning, my time. It's, I'm on the West Coast, so it's about an hour and a half after midnight for me. Uh, good news is I got my coffee. There's good news and bad news. Good news is I have my coffee. It's in the mug my dad got me, which says, with a great beard comes great responsibility. The bad news is I don't really have a great beard. I have a beard that is barely passable as a beard. It's really more just peach fuzz on my face. Um, great show today. We're going to talk about the NBA trade deadline. We're going to talk about the XFL. There's some news in the XFL I want to briefly discuss because I have a, I got a bit of a different perspective on something I think other people don't understand very well. Uh, I think it was some misreporting and some, I don't know, I got I to gotta feel about something. There's a new Browns general manager. I want to react to him and talk about what I saw during his introductory press conference. Um, we're going to talk about the NFL, the NFL offseason in general. We're going to talk about some of the moves I want to see happen. But first, I want to start with this. It's a film analysis. Today, the question I want to tackle is what does the film say about the Super Bowl? Specifically, though, what does it say about the losing team, the San Francisco 49ers? What happened? And whose fault is it that they lost? Some people want to blame the head coach, Kyle Shanahan. He's the offensive play caller. But other people want to blame the quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo. So let's find out. What does the film say? One of the forgotten narratives from this Super Bowl is that Jimmy Garoppolo actually played really good early on. In fact, the whole 49ers offense was operating at a really high level in the first half of this game. The 49ers had some gashing runs, and they were picking up big chunks of yardage. Jimmy Garoppolo was making some really good throws. He was also taking what the defense gave him underneath. In my opinion, this game really gets interesting in the second half. But there are three important things from the first half we need to first discuss. Number one is Jimmy Garoppolo's interception. It came on the first play of the second quarter, and it's a simple example of a quarterback trying to do too much. He's getting hit as he throws, and what he needs to do in this situation is just hold on to the ball and take the sack. Instead, he compounds a mistake. He makes a bad play even worse by forcing a throw into coverage, which causes an interception. And by the way, I think it's interesting. Everyone talks about Jimmy Garoppolo's bad interception. It's funny that people totally overlook the fact that Patrick Mahomes also threw an ugly interception in this game. Anyway, there were also two big moments right around the final two minutes of the first half we need to now discuss. So the 49ers stopped the Chiefs on third and 14 with a minute and 53 seconds left to go in the first half. The 49ers had all three of their timeouts. Many people are upset with the way the 49ers head coach, Kyle Shanahan, allowed the clock to run down. He did not call a timeout after the third and 14 stop. Instead, he allowed the clock to continue to run, which means that the Chiefs didn't punt the ball away until there was only one minute and eight seconds left before halftime. Again, he could have stopped the clock, but he decided to let it run. And then later, on a first and 10 with 59 seconds left, the 49ers ran the ball, which got the clock running again. And then they continued to let the clock run down and didn't snap the ball on second down until there was 27 seconds left on the clock. So the question is, why was Kyle Shanahan so conservative? 
The key here is field position. That third and 14 play where the 49ers were on defense happened at midfield. That means that Kyle Shanahan knew the 49ers were going to get the ball deep in their own territory once the Chiefs punted the ball away. And in fact, they did. That first and 10 play where they ran the ball, they had the ball on their own 20-yard line. Here's the danger in this situation. If you go three and out and you don't run out the clock before you punt the ball away, you risk giving Patrick Mahomes, the former NFL MVP, the ball with time on the clock and good field position around midfield. That's a bad, bad idea. Kyle Shanahan was conservative because he was backed up in his own territory. And he didn't want to give Patrick Mahomes momentum going into halftime. Now, the other moment of contention before halftime was a big catch by George Kittle with 14 seconds left that got called back for offensive pass interference. Now, if you watch the play at full speed from far away, it looks like there's no penalty here. It seems like the 49ers got screwed out of points before halftime. But the reality is, it truly was offensive pass interference. George Kittle straightened his arm and pushed off. Here's what receivers are taught from a young age. You can't straighten your arm. What you can do is kind of chicken wing a guy, which means you push off a little bit, but you don't fully extend your arm. But the minute you lock out your elbow, that's offensive pass interference. And if you do that, it will be called every single time. If you watch closely, that's what George Kittle did. He fully extended his arm. Now let's talk about the second half, because that's when the Chiefs finally began to slow down the 49ers running game. How? What changed? That's what's interesting. Schematically, the Chiefs actually changed very little. On the 49ers' earlier big runs, the Chiefs lined up with seven guys in the box. But they over-pursued and got beat up front. What that means is that in the first half, the Chiefs were making the right defensive calls to put guys in the right position to be successful. But they weren't executing. As the game went on, the Chiefs transitioned from being close to actually finally making tackles and getting stops. The Chiefs' defense finally began to do a better job executing in the second half. And the reality is that they just tackled better after halftime. Things began to go downhill for 49ers quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo on a third and five with 10 minutes left in the third quarter. He had George Kittle wide open in the middle of the field, and instead, he decided to throw underneath to Tevin Coleman. It's an example of Jimmy Garoppolo predetermining where he's going to throw the ball, rather than simply reading the defense. What happened is, he decided to throw to Tevin Coleman before he even snapped the ball. And we saw this again on the 49ers' next drive. It was second and eight, and the 49ers sent a motion man across the formation. Now, Jimmy Garoppolo saw two things pre-snap that told him it was man coverage. Number one, he saw a Chiefs defender blatantly follow the motion man from one side of the field to the other. And number two, the pre-snap alignment by the Chiefs defense would suggest that it's man coverage. So what Jimmy does is picks the matchup he likes best against man coverage and throws the ball there. Here's the problem, though you still have to read the coverage. In theory, yes, George Kittle should not be open. He should be covered across the middle because there's a safety sitting in the middle of the field. However, uh, nobody covers George Kittle. (laughs) He's wide open. And Jimmy G didn't even give him a look 
because he predetermined where he was throwing the ball rather than reading the defense. It's good to have a pre-snap plan. Every quarterback should. But you still got to read the defense after you snap the ball. Now, in the end, that play didn't matter. The 49ers would go on to score a touchdown three plays later anyway. There were two throws that set up a Raheem Mostert touchdown run. But Jimmy G deciding who he's throwing to pre-snap and not reading the defense is still a big problem. Now, before we finish with Jimmy G, we need to talk about the 49ers running game. Many people are mad about the 49ers play calling from this Super Bowl. People say that late in the game, the 49ers didn't run the ball enough. And, you know, it's really easy to look at a piece of paper that says the 49ers ran the ball this many times and they threw the ball this many times. But you have to pay attention to context. People obsessed with numbers that don't pay attention to context drive me nuts. I hate it. Here's what happened on the next 49ers drive. It's first and 10 with 10 minutes left to go in the fourth quarter. And the 49ers run the ball on first down and get stuffed. Now remember, the Chiefs have proven their ability to stop the 49ers running game. People say you got to keep running the ball because you got to run more time off the clock. And yeah, like in, in theory, that's a great, great premise. But you also have to acknowledge that in order to keep running time off the clock, you also have to get first downs. So on second and nine, Kyle Shanahan makes a great play call. Jimmy G has Debo Samuel wide open but he misses the throw high. Oof. And then a false start makes third and nine, third and 14 instead. And here's my question. Do you want the 49ers to run the ball on third and 14? Does that really make any sense? No. You're trying to get first downs to keep the drive alive so you continue to run time off the clock. Now on the next 49ers drive, the 49ers are now leading 20 to 17 and they go three and out. On first and 10, they ran the ball for five yards. And then on second and five, Kyle Shanahan made another great play call. George Kittle is wide open, and the ball is knocked down at the line of scrimmage. Mm. And then here's what's baffling. On third and five, again, George Kittle is wide open. And it's so frustrating because Jimmy G doesn't throw to him. It's another case where Jimmy G decided where to throw pre-snap rather than reading the defense. Now, on the very next 49ers drive, this time they're losing 24-20. to And by the way, on first and 10, they ran the ball for 17 yards. Oh, but I thought they abandoned the run. Next, they had a good throw to Kittle. He grabs eight yards. Then a big throw to Kendrick Bourne gets him even more yards. And he makes a nice move and gets out of bounds. The 49ers are really moving the ball well. And here's where things get controversial, I guess. It's first and 10 with a minute and 49 seconds left. And the 49ers ran four straight passing plays. I think it's fine to call four straight passing plays here, especially when you hear how it went down and what happened and you realize, oh, they were good play calls. But you know what? You can be the judge. On first and 10, it was a great play call. Debo Samuel was wide open. But Chris Jones knocks the ball down at the line of scrimmage. There's nothing you can do as a play caller when a defensive lineman gets his arms up and tips a pass. On second and 10, Jimmy G is too slow to get the ball out. There is a brief window where Kendrick Bourne is open if he gets it out quickly. But Jimmy Garoppolo is way too casual and slow, 
and gets lucky he's not picked off. Now, third and 10 is the dagger. Emmanuel Sanders is wide open deep, but Jimmy G overthrows him. It would have been either a touchdown or at least first in goal. That's a painful one that's going to haunt him for a long time. Now, on fourth and 10, you have to throw the ball. The Chiefs play great coverage. Nobody's open. And Frank Clark makes a great play and gets a sack. That's what happened on those four straight pass plays. From a play caller's perspective, they were the right play calls. But you had one ball tipped, two throws where the quarterback didn't execute, and a fourth and 10 where a guy made a great play and got a sack on your quarterback. That's not Kyle Shanahan's fault. Now, there is one final play we could talk about. At this point, the game is over. The 49ers are losing 31-20. to And Jimmy G throws a seam ball. He's late, and he puts too much air under the throw, which allows the defender a chance to make a play at the ball, and Kendall Fuller makes a crazy good play and grabs an interception. But it's like, eh. Either way, it's inconsequential. There was a minute left, and the game was over. So here's the question, and it's a harsh one. Whose fault is it? I gotta say, it's not Kyle Shanahan's fault. He made great play calls, and many times, guys were open, and either Jimmy Garoppolo would simply miss the throw inaccurately, or the ball was tipped at the line of scrimmage, or let's be honest, Jimmy Garoppolo would make bad decisions. Multiple times, especially George Kittle was wide open, and Jimmy G would predetermine where he was going rather than reading the defense and reacting. He would make a decision before he even snapped the ball. I'm going to throw to Kendrick Bourne, or I'm going to throw to Emmanuel Sanders rather than reading the defense and reacting. That's a gigantic problem that's inexcusable from Jimmy Garoppolo. It's also, I got to say, it's weird people just blame Kyle Shanahan. Everyone's like, Kyle Shanahan's the guy who blew a big lead in the Super Bowl. But nobody talks about Robert Sala, the defensive coordinator, the guy in charge of the defense that gave up 21 points in the final seven minutes of the Super Bowl. Nobody talks about that. And it's a little bit weird. Kyle Shanahan gets all the blame and he's really the guy who did a great job throughout the game. People also keep saying the 49ers didn't run the ball enough, and that's just stupid. You have to look at the context of what happened. You want the 49ers to run the ball in third and 14 or in a two-minute drill? Come on, stop. He called the right pass. He, he, first of all, he called pass plays, yes, but he called the right pass plays, and guys were open many, many times. Now, the harsh reality of this Super Bowl is that Jimmy Garoppolo, the 49ers quarterback, didn't make enough plays down the stretch. That's really harsh, but it's true. He wasn't able to keep up with the Chiefs quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. He was predetermining throws and not throwing to George Kittle. He was missing Emmanuel Sanders. That, that throw, missing Emmanuel Sanders deep on third and 10, is going to haunt him forever. He's going to always think about that moment where he had an opportunity to take the lead late in the Super Bowl, and he missed the throw on third and 10. And then, not, you know, don't forget he also overthrew Debo Samuel a couple times. Uh, you know, for Jimmy Garoppolo, it was really a tale of two halves. He was good in the first half, and then he kind of fell off the rails in the second half. But people act like he was terrible the entire game, and that's simply not true. Yes, at the end of the game, Jimmy Garoppolo did not make enough plays to keep up with Patrick Mahomes. But here's why I wouldn't give up on Jimmy Garoppolo. All the mistakes he made were fixable. Yes, Jimmy G needs to make improvements for sure. But he's not a bad quarterback. The narrative that he's a bad quarterback and they should move on is silly. People forget this was his first year ever as a starting quarterback playing the entire season. 
In his first season as a quarterback playing the full year, he led his team to the Super Bowl. That's not a bad quarterback. I don't understand. In fact, really, the truth is he's a pretty good quarterback. He makes a lot of good plays. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. He couldn't keep up with maybe the best quarterback we've ever seen, Patrick Mahomes. Did he make mistakes? Absolutely, Jimmy Garoppolo made mistakes. The truth is that watching the tape from this game is going to be really painful. Jimmy Garoppolo is going to see things he did on film and go, oh, man, I blew it. I missed George Kittle open. I missed a third and 10. I did this. I did that. But all Jimmy Garoppolo can do moving forward is learn from his mistakes, and I think he's going to do that. He's a good quarterback. He's shown progression every single year I've watched him. And again, don't forget, this was only his first year ever playing an entire season as a starting quarterback. Jimmy Garoppolo has a bright future ahead. I wouldn't give up on him. I think it's really, really silly. And that is what the film says about the Super Bowl. All right. Um, one of my big takeaways after the Super Bowl is that I believe a ton of NFL players are going to want to play with the Chiefs quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. So we saw in the past decade, a lot of NFL players were going out of their way to join the New England Patriots in order to try to get a championship. They were ring chasing by going to play for Bill Belichick and play with Tom Brady. I believe the new location to ring chase in the NFL is in Kansas City with Patrick Mahomes. Guys will take less money to try to win a championship with Patrick. That's the value of working with good people. That value is massive. If you can have good people around you, it's invaluable. To have good coworkers that can help you succeed, man, I'm telling you. Receivers, especially receivers who've already gotten paid, maybe they had their big first contract. Guys are going to want to come play with Patrick Mahomes because the opportunities you're going to get catching a football. If you're offered $14 million with one team and 10 or 11 with the Chiefs, you're going to go play in Kansas City. It might be less money, but you're going to have a better life. And you're going to get a lot more passes and have a more fun time and potentially win a championship. So, man, I'm telling you, uh, guys that want to go play with a good quarterback and guys who want to win rings are going to start going in the direction of Kansas City. It's a great way to end their career. Now, one more interesting thing about Mahomes, though, is he, there's an opportunity for him to make more money. So his, he could either, at the end, this offseason, what he could do, either he could ask for a new contract or he can take a fifth-year deal or fifth-year option and continue the contract he's already in. So maybe he's going to ask for the biggest contract of all time. I think Patrick Mahomes certainly could command that. But maybe, just maybe, Patrick Mahomes will finally be the guy who takes a bit of a discount to have better people around him. I've been waiting and waiting for the quarterback other than Tom Brady. People always discount Tom Brady because his wife makes a ton of money. I'm waiting for that quarterback who says, you know what, I want to win championships, and I'll take a little less money in order to do that. I mean, think about it. If you're Patrick Mahomes, you could make $40 million a year, $40 million, if you wanted to. But what he could also do is take $28 million a year, that 12 extra million dollars, to go to a player or two, maybe three, make their roster better and help them win a championship. And I got to say, the difference in lifestyle between $28 million and $40 million isn't, like, I've never had that much money. Clearly, like, $12 million is a big difference. It's a lot of money. But how different is your lifestyle, really? You live in the same house. You drive the same nice car. You go on the same vacations. You have extra money. I know. That's, so I'm not saying $12 million is nothing. 
But in the scheme of things, for quality of life to win more football games and have better people around you, it might be worth it. I would not be shocked if Patrick Mahomes takes a pay cut in order to have better people around him. I, I just, I've been waiting and waiting for the quarterback that does this. Russell Wilson wouldn't do it. Aaron Rodgers wouldn't do it. Matthew Stafford. There are so many quarterbacks that have had opportunities to do this and haven't. Patrick Mahomes might just be the special guy to do that. Think about it. He's 24 years old. He's got an incredible career ahead of him. He's going to make millions and millions of dollars. But what if he also makes millions of dollars, is the face of the NFL for years, and has good players around him and wins a lot of championships? That's the lifestyle I would want. If I'm Patrick Mahomes, I'm like, okay, I can take 25, 26, 27, 28 million dollars a year and have better teammates, or I can make, you know, have a gigantic ego, make the highest contract in NFL history, 45, 40 million dollars a year. Great. But then there's nobody else that can play with you. And I think the Chiefs roster understands. I've heard a couple players on the roster talk about this. They're willing to take less money to keep the group together. They want to do something special and go on a run and win multiple championships. We might, in fact, see that from Patrick Mahomes, a quarterback who might actually take less money in order to win more and have better teammates around him. All right. um, The NBA trade deadline just happened, and I want to discuss the Five trades that grabbed my attention the most over the last couple days during the NBA trade deadline. I want to start with number one. Andre Iguodala was traded to the Miami Heat. And I got to say, man, I am so, so happy for Andre Iguodala. It's awesome. And he was traded to the Memphis Grizzlies a while back. And uh, I I think he did it respectfully. I would say that respectfully... Andre Iguodala refused to play for the Memphis Grizzlies. He said, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be a part of this franchise, and I want you to trade me to one of the teams I decided. If you don't trade me to one of those teams, I'm not going to play this year. And uh, you know, he said, if you don't trade me, I'm not going to play for you, and I want to be traded to this list of teams. So he got traded to Miami, who I think was one of the teams on his list because he reacted really happily to it. And I am so happy for Andre Iguodala for so many reasons. Number one, he's going to a good team. Uh, The Miami Heat are the number four team in the Eastern Conference. They are a contender. They're winning games. I mean, he's going to freaking Miami. Stinking Miami has (laughs) incredible weather, great beaches. He got a two-year contract extension worth $30 million. Good for him. And think about it. Andre Iguodala is 37 years old. He's been around the league for a long time. He's won three NBA championships. And I love that he took control of his career and said, I want to go where I want to go. I'm tired of being traded places and having my rights controlled by other people. I want to take control of my career and go where I want to go. And so I love that he did that, man. I think it's awesome. I think it's a, it's something we've, I haven't seen this really happen in a while and it might be the beginning of a new trend in the NBA. Say, I'm only playing for the team I want to play for. I have money. I've won a lot. And if you don't put me on the team I want to play on, I'm not going to play and I don't need your money and you can't manipulate me. It's also great for the Miami Heat. The Miami Heat got a good defender. They probably they have Jimmy Butler, who's a great defender. Their second best defender is now Andre Iguodala. And let me be very clear. I've talked about how Miami's a great place to live, and Andre has a preference about all this stuff, but he's coming to Miami to work. He's very excited. Jimmy Butler is the heart and soul of the Miami Heat. And Jimmy Butler is a really... He's a tough, I'd call him a workhorse. He works and works and works, and he really pushes the people around him. And if you don't want to work hard, you will not work well with Jimmy Butler. But guess what? 
Andre Iguodala is really excited for the opportunity to work alongside him. And that's cool. I think they're a great fit. I think they're both veterans. Andre Iguodala is 37 years old. He's been around the league for a long time. He understands what he's getting into in Miami. He's coming to Miami to work his butt off, to try to win games, and be a veteran leader alongside Jimmy Butler, who's the face of the franchise. It's awesome. I think it's going to work really, really well in Miami. And I am so excited for Andre Iguodala. Now, I also have to acknowledge that uh, the Grizzlies got Justice uh, Winslow, and that's good for them. He's a forward. He's 23 years old. He's a young guy who I think could help the Grizzlies in the future. He's very young. He's a former. He was a number 10 overall pick a couple of years back. He's got a lot of potential. And what's even cooler is the Grizzlies basically got him for free because Andre Iguodala wasn't going to bring any value to the Memphis Grizzlies. He refused to play for him. They weren't going to get anything for him. So they traded him away. They got a young player. And uh, good for them. And Winslow is awesome. And I think it worked out really well for both sides. The Grizzlies got a good young player that might potentially help their franchise in the future. And the Miami Heat got a great player, a great defender, and a good veteran leader in the NBA. Both sides won here. Great trade. My favorite trade of the NBA trade deadline. Now, the second trade I want to talk about is the Cleveland Cavaliers got Andre Drummond from the Detroit Pistons. And it's interesting because, you know, Andre Drummond is 26 years old. He's the best rebounder in the NBA. He's averaging 18 points per game and 16 rebounds per game. And the Pistons traded him because he has an opt-out at the end of his contract. I guess he has, a, he has an opt-out at the end of the season to opt out of his contract and become a free agent. And the Detroit Pistons were afraid that he was going to opt out of his contract and leave in free agency. I think it's interesting. You know, he's been with the Pistons since 2012. He's, they drafted him in 2012. He's very loyal. He's been there his whole career. And I think it's very odd that the Detroit Pistons got basically nothing for a really good player, Andre Drummond. Here's what they got. They got two guys I've never heard of and are basically no-name backups. They got John Henson and Brandon Knight. And they got a 2023, you know, years from, two years from now, three years from now, 2023 first, uh, second round, not a first round pick, a 2023 second round pick. So two no-name players and a second round pick in three years. The Cleveland Cavaliers gave up nothing to get Andre Drummond. And the Pistons, the bigger sin is the Pistons got nothing for Andre Drummond. Maybe they're trying to tank, I get it, but I just don't understand what they're doing. I think they really should have kept him and tried to convince him to stay in their city. They had a good pitch. Hey, you've been here forever. We love you. You're a hometown guy. You've been with us our entire career. Stay loyal. And in fact, Andre Drummond put on Twitter, he was offended. They didn't talk to him. They didn't even consult him or tell him he was being traded. He found out the news from someone else. So I, I really do not like the at all the way the Detroit Pistons handled this trade. I think they botched it. They got rid of a great player for basically nothing. And uh, good on the Cavaliers. They gave up nothing and got a good, good player that might stay in their city. Might not. I mean, Andre Drummond might leave the Cavaliers, but why not try to make this trade happen and keep him around? All, you can, all he can do is say no to you, and you gave up basically nothing to get him. So I think the Pistons botched it. Good for the Cavaliers. And uh, I guess it's like kind of a YOLO move. Why not try to keep Andre Drummond around if you're the Cavaliers? Now, the Warriors and the Timberwolves also traded. The Warriors got Andrew Wiggins, uh, the former number one overall pick. They also got the, a 2021 first-round pick and a 2021 second-round pick from the Minnesota Timberwolves. Now, the T-Wolves got D'Angelo Russell, Jacob Evans, and Amari Spellman. Now, you might be thinking, why would the Warriors trade away D'Angelo Russell? They just traded for him last offseason. But you got to realize the Warriors were never that committed to D'Angelo Russell. The only reason they brought him in 
was because when they traded Kevin Durant to the Nets, they had to get something for him. They couldn't give up Kevin Durant for nothing, and they needed a piece that they could use in a trade in the future. That's exactly what they did. I think what's more interesting is that the Minnesota Timberwolves decided to move on from Andrew Wiggins. You know, they picked him as a number one overall pick years ago. He's been there. This is uh, Andrew Wiggins' sixth season with the Timberwolves. And uh, it's just interesting. They gave up on him. They said, you know what? We're done. We don't believe in Andrew Wiggins. It's not going to work long term. And they traded him away. So D'Angelo Russell averages 23 points per game. He's believed to be the better player. Probably, I guess, good for the Timberwolves. They have a good young player they can build around. And uh, now Andrew Wiggins, though, is averaging 22 points per game. He's having his best year as a pro. And here's the truth that I think is happening behind the scenes in this trade. Why would the Warriors trade away D'Angelo Russell for Wiggins? Here's what they really got. The true value of getting, making this trade happen. They got Andrew Wiggins, who's playing the best of his entire career. And they got a first-round pick. They got another first-round pick. So now the Warriors have the pieces. They're acquiring the assets to put together a really good trade package to try to trade for another star this upcoming offseason in, in the NBA. Remember, they're getting Steph Curry back. They're getting Klay Thompson back. And if they can trade for another big player in the NBA, a couple first-round picks, and maybe Andrew Wiggins, man, that's an opportunity for another team to come in and uh, another team get a couple good players and good young picks to build around. And the Warriors could bring in a really good star who can contribute right away to make the Warriors with Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, uh, uh, (laughs) Draymond, Draymond Green, and maybe another star, that would make the Warriors competitive and maybe dominant over teams like the Lakers and the Clippers. Food for thought. What are the Warriors thinking long term? I think they just gathered, gathered a lot of assets in this trade to continue to have a trade in the future this upcoming offseason. Now, uh, the 76ers also traded with the Golden State Warriors. Here's what the Warriors got. The Warriors got three second round picks. A 2020 second round pick, a 2021 second round pick, and a 2022 second round pick. The 76ers got Alec Burks and Glenn Robinson, and I think this is a great move for the Philadelphia 76ers. A big issue for the 76ers so far this year is that they have not had good shooting really anywhere, but especially off the bench. Their bench is awful and really weak. So now both these two guys they brought in are solid shooters. They can come off the bench and contribute when their star players need rest. It's a great move for the 76ers. They finally... For years, we've been waiting. They got some star players, but they've had a horrible bench for years. They solidified their bench. It's a great move for the 76ers. I don't know if it's going to have a huge impact, but I hope it does. I really would like to see the 76ers succeed. They got great star players. They now have a better bench. Um, Maybe the coach is a problem. I don't know. But the 76ers have not been the dominating team and the dominating force. I think everybody expected them to be, given how great their starting five is on paper. And... uh, we're kind of just waiting in limbo, waiting for the 76ers to make a move and finally make something happen. Now, the fifth trade on my radar that grabbed my attention in the NBA trade deadline, you, I think a lot, a lot of people would have put this first. For me, it's not as big a deal. Uh, it was a massive, messy four-team trade. Honestly, it's a super complicated trade. Uh, there, again, the four teams involved were the Minnesota Timberwolves, the Denver Nuggets, the Atlanta Hawks, and the Houston Rockets. There were 12 players involved in total, not to mention the draft picks that were involved. Uh, a lot of moving pieces. I honestly found it hard to follow. I was like, what is going on? You're trading to this guy, then they're trading that over here, and it was just a gigantic jumbling mess. Um, so I, what I want to do is share what happened in the end, some of the abbreviated takeaways. I'm not going to get into all 12 players. There's a bunch of players that are inconsequential and just kind of bench players and backups, and some of the guys were moved simply to clear cap space. 
Um, but here's what, in the end what happened. The Minnesota Timberwolves got a couple players and a first-round pick. The Denver Nuggets got Houston's first-round pick. The Atlanta Hawks got Clint Capella, the center from the Rockets. He's, he's good. He averages 13 points per game and 13 rebounds. And the Houston Rockets got Robert Covington from Minnesota, a forward who averages 12 points per game. Uh, I think what's interesting about the Rockets and kind of odd is that the result of this trade is that now the Rockets don't have a center. Not really. I mean, they lost Clint Capella. And their starting lineup is now really small. A lot of guys with not very much size. They're playing a really small starting five. And I wonder if that's going to hurt them down the road in the playoffs or be, uh, even getting into the playoffs. Just not having a big dominating force down low. Is, it that gonna, is that going to hurt them or not? They don't match up well with teams like the Lakers who have Anthony Davis and Dwight Howard. I don't know what's going to happen to the Rockets, but I want to find out. This trade is intriguing and kind of weird, very much outside the box, but they are very much committing to having a small lineup and winning that way in Houston. Now, the other team I want to talk about in this trade that I think is really interesting is the Denver Nuggets. It feels like the Denver Nuggets acted more as a middleman, kind of helping to facilitate the trade, not doing a lot, gave up a couple players, but the, the key takeaway for the Denver Nuggets... They gave away, I think, two players, and they walked away with a first-round pick moving forward. Good for them. The Denver Nuggets gave up very little. They got a first-round pick. Uh, I think the Denver Nuggets, of any team, if any team won this trade, in my opinion, it was actually the Denver Nuggets who did very little and walked away with a good asset moving forward. So I don't know, man. I really liked it. Those are the five trades that I thought were most intriguing from the NBA trade deadline. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. When I return, I want to react to the, uh, Andrew Barry, the new Browns general manager. We'll talk about then some XFL news. We'll talk about the NFL offseason, and we'll call it a show. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Um, I want to talk about this now. Andrew Barry is the new Browns general manager. And uh, first of all, my dad says, my dad and I joke about the Browns a lot. My dad says he's already off on the wrong foot. Because he accepted a job with the Cleveland Browns. Ah, that's harsh. Um, but I, I want to say I watched Andrew Barry's introductory press conference. And I want to share my initial impression of him. Because I really saw some stuff I liked. Uh, number one, though, I got to say he's the youngest general manager in NFL history. He's only 32 years old. Which means that some of the players playing for the Browns will actually be older than he is. And I got to say, I have no idea whether or not Andrew Barry is going to be a good general manager or not. I hope so, though. Because what I saw, I really liked. He seemed like a good guy. We'll talk about why. Um, if you're a Browns fan, you're like, Zach, I want to hear whether he's a good general manager or not. How could I know that? We, like, he's got an interesting background. He's worked for a couple other teams. He actually worked for the Browns a couple years ago when they were terrible. So that's not really good for his resume. But I got to say, um, one of the things that Andrew Barry talked about that I really liked was he talked about how diversity can come in all kinds of shapes and forms. You know, he said, yes, race is one type of diversity, but there's also, you know, a diversity of experience, diversity of age, diversity of thought. And he said he was really open to new perspectives and wanted people who were willing to look outside the box and find different solutions. I thought that was really cool. And I want to note that he, you know, he said he was grateful for the people who he's worked for over the years that overlooked how young he was. So he really appreciated the people that have treated him like valuable in spite of the fact that he's a young guy. I really, I resonate with that. I'm a young guy too. Uh, I'm young in the media world. And I really appreciate when people treat me like a professional, even though I'm, I'm only 22 years old. Um, I got to say, he seems like a good man. Um, but again, being a good man doesn't necessarily mean you're a good general manager. He said that, you know, success comes from good people. 
I hope so. I hope the world works that way. I don't know that it does. But I also have to acknowledge that Andrew Barry is a really, really impressive speaker. He went on a long, detailed speech. He was really well prepared. And I know that because he never once looked down at his notes, but he was using very eloquent words. It was clearly prepared and something he memorized. I was like, man, I just, I'm surprised you memorized all of that stuff. You never looked down at your notes. Really interesting. Now, again, does that mean he's a good general manager? No, not at all. Um, but again, he seems like a good guy and uh, good people are easy to root for. I'm definitely rooting for Andrew Barry moving forward. I'm actually just rooting for the Cleveland Browns. I feel bad for them. They've been bad my entire adult life, my entire lifetime period. I've never been alive that the Browns have been a good football franchise. And uh, now they have a lot of talent. I know a lot of people hate Baker Mayfield. I find Baker Mayfield incredibly, maybe the word is human. He's a flawed human. He's not perfect, but he's very authentic. He's true to who he is. And I just find Baker Mayfield polarizing and interesting and a guy I root for because I think under the harsh exterior and, you know, the, the kind of shell and the person he's put out to the world, I think Baker Mayfield really is a good dude. And I think there's a good guy inside. And um, I just... I find myself rooting for Cleveland. I'm rooting for Baker Mayfield. I'm rooting for Odell Beckham Jr. I'm rooting for Andrew Barry. I so badly want to see the Cleveland Browns turn things around. They're kind of like the little engine that could. They're like, just please, Cleveland, please figure it out. Um, I don't think anybody hates the Cleveland Browns. They haven't been good in a long time, so they haven't beat anybody or pissed anybody off. I'd really like to see the Cleveland Browns turn things around and finally someday win. Maybe Andrew Barry is part of that. He's the youngest general manager in NFL history, that's a little bit concerning. I'm not going to lie. But why hold that against him? He's young. I'm also young at what I do. Why, can't I be good at what I do? Simply, be, you know, Even though I'm young, I think I can be a good analyst of sports. And you know, even though he's young, maybe Andrew Barry can be a really good general manager. I find him human. I find him interesting. I have no idea if he's good at his job. But I hope he is. And we will certainly find out in the next coming months. Now, um, a story came out. I read it on xflnewshub.com. It was an article by Mike Mitchell. And the headline read, Pat McAfee potentially passing on the XFL gig. And I went, what? Uh, To be very clear, Pat McAfee is a large part of why I'm even excited to watch the XFL. You know, I want to watch Pat McAfee work as a field reporter on the sidelines of XFL games. And if he's not there, to me, that's a gigantic disappointment to the league. And so the story is, the story goes that Pat McAfee uh, might pull out after week one of the XFL season. Now, by the way, I I made a whole video. I talked about the three things I'm excited for in the XFL. I'm a big Pat McAfee fan. I don't really listen to his show, but every time I watch Pat McAfee on television, he's incredibly relatable. He's interesting. He's fun. He's probably the best person to cover live sports I've ever seen in my life because he's very, he's not stuffy. He's not super professional. He's not super corporate. He's himself. He's, He's totally his own brand. And I find it refreshing, fun, entertaining. He's my favorite you know, analyst in sports that works on live television. And so I got to say, my opinion on all of this is that, you know, so the, the rumor right now is that Pat McAfee is going, this is not my opinion, this is the rumor that's going around. The rumor is, and is kind of being said, is that Pat McAfee is going to work the first week of the XFL season, see how it goes, test it out. And if things don't go well, he's not going to continue the rest of the year. You know, it's, it's not about the pay, it's not about the travel. Uh, the rumor is it's the job itself. So right now he's scheduled to do the game between the Dallas Renegades and the St. Louis Battlehawks on Sunday, February 9th on ESPN. But what people don't realize about the field analyst position is it's actually a lot of scripted stand-up parts. He'll like 
there'd be talking. Let's flip to Zach on the sideline. And Zach, myself, would read. I'd basically read a script off a piece of paper. All right, back to you guys in the booth. It's very interesting and weird. And that's really not what I think makes Pat McAfee great. What makes Pat McAfee great is when Pat McAfee's being himself and he's being off the cuff and being totally authentic and allowed to have fun with it. And so I honestly don't believe Pat McAfee wants to back out of the XFL. I believe what's happening here is this rumor came from Pat McAfee and his people. This is my belief. I have no sources here. My belief, though, is that this came from McAfee and his people because I think he's posturing with ESPN to say, hey, you know, I want to have things my way. If you don't want to give me my way, I'm not going to do this. Here's the reality. I believe that ESPN would be making a gigantic mistake if they tried to, A, control Pat McAfee, or B, let him walk away and not do the XFL. Let's be very clear. Pat McAfee doesn't need the money, doesn't need the job. He's got a great show. He does a lot of other stuff. ESPN needs Pat McAfee to do this role more than Pat McAfee needs to do this role. So I really think Pat has all the leverage here, and I think this is somewhat of a threat. He's saying, hey, if you don't give me what I want, I'm not going to do this job. But again, I think ESPN has it totally wrong here. I've worked for ESPN before. I've been on the sidelines for them doing camera operations stuff and all kinds of stuff. They are a controlling company to work for. I, I'm not a fan of them. I would never want to work for them. They're hard to work for. And I think if ESPN has any brains at all, they'll recognize, hey, uh, Pat McAfee is a great asset. And why in the world would you try to control a great asset or put Pat McAfee in a box? Again, Pat McAfee has a stand-up background. He's done. He's got a great stand-up special on YouTube. And he's best when he's off the cuff being himself. Why would you try to control him? I just think it's awful. And um, I, I think, man, if ESPN... You know, Pat McAfee is good for the XFL. Pat McAfee is good for that league. And if ESPN has any brains at all, they'll get out of the way. They'll allow Pat to do things his way. They'll support him. They'll give him the tools he needs. And they'll say, hey, Pat... We want you here. We want to work with you. However you want to do it, we're allowed, We're willing to give you whatever platform you want because you're good for the league. You're entertaining. You're fun. And people want to hear you talk about our sport. And so if ESPN has any brains at all, they're going to give Pat McAfee all the freedom he wants. Now, the sad reality is I don't think that's necessarily... I hope it happens. I think it'd be amazing. That's not how ESPN works. I've worked for them. They're a controlling bunch of people. They're, they're frustrating to work for. Uh, they don't even let their employees have their own Twitter handles. It's very bizarre. And so I, I don't know that Pat McAfee is going to get what he wants to get the freedom he deserves. And I think it's best for him because as a creator, again, it's better for him to just be given a rope and say, hey, go do your own thing. We're not going to try to control you. But I don't know that ESPN has the capacity or the vision to even see that as a possibility. And so if Pat McAfee ends up not doing the XFL season, it's on ESPN, in my opinion. Uh, I think he'd be making a huge mistake. It'd be very dumb of them. And they, it's on them. They got to figure out a way to make it work with Pat McAfee. He's do good for their sport. He's one of the reasons I want to watch it. And I think I speak for a lot of people when I say that. Part of why I want to watch the XFL is so that I can watch Pat McAfee do his thing talking about football live. All right. Um, the NFL offseason is here. So I made a list of some things that I'm really excited to see happen or potentially happen upcoming in the offseason. The number one thing I'm t I want to talk about, actually, before we get there, I want to say, I know I'm going to be missing a couple things. There, I, I'm, I'm certain that there's something I'm overlooking or is not on my list. And so if you're watching this video on YouTube, please comment down below. Tell me whatever you think I'm missing out or whatever things you're excited for. And if you're listening on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or this or that, send me a direct message on Instagram, at Zach Schaumler. Send me a direct message. Tell me what you're excited for in the NFL offseason, I want to cover those things. And I don't know, I, I want to talk about things you want to hear me talk about. And so 
These are the things I'm excited for that popped into my brain when I sat down and made the list today. I know there are things I'm forgetting. If you wanted me to talk about something, please let me know. I want to cover the NFL offseason. I'm so excited for it. And the first thing I'm really excited for is where will Tom Brady go and will he even go anywhere? When you look around the media right now, so many people are making lists. These are the top five destinations or these are the best destinations for Tom Brady to go. He might not actually leave. I don't know. But is he going to, I just think it's so fascinating. It's probably the biggest sports story in the world right now. Where is Tom Brady going to end up? Is he going to leave as a free agent? Is he going to stay in New England? Where will he go that gives him the best opportunity to win a Super Bowl? Number two, how much is the Dallas Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott going to be paid? His contract is up. Is he going to get a gigantic contract worth a lot of money? Is he going to get franchise tagged? I have no idea. I don't even know what I would do there. I think Dak Prescott's not good enough for a gigantic, massive contract. We'll see what happens. If it were me, I would franchise tag him for one more year and see what he does with a new head coach and a new offensive coordinator and yada, yada. I wouldn't feel comfortable right now giving him a 30 to $33 million a year contract. How much is Dak Prescott going to get paid this offseason? That's what I can't wait to find out. Number three, what are the Tennessee Titans going to do with their free agent running back, Derrick Henry? Their offense is built around Derrick Henry. He's a workhorse. He's, you know, he was a leading rusher last year in the NFL. He's 26 years old, though. He's not, you know, 26 is the, the, probably the, the top end of being still, quote-unquote, young as a running back in the NFL. Some people even say that's already too young. You shouldn't pay him. I think the Titans got to pay Derrick Henry because they have no other option. Their entire offense is built around him, and if they don't commit to him and build around him, they have to completely reset and rebuild their entire offense. That's a gigantic mistake in my opinion. We'll find out. I don't know. Uh, but what will the Titans do with Derrick Henry? I think they'd be crazy to let him walk, but not necessarily because he's so great and might not get hurt. It's a risk for sure, signing a 26-year-old running back who's played a lot of snaps and a lot of downs in his career. But I say again, what is the alternative for the Tennessee Titans? They have no other second option, so you have to re-sign Derrick Henry in my opinion, if you're the Tennessee Titans. Number four, what will happen with Patrick Mahomes' contract? The Kansas City Chiefs quarterback in the last two years, he's played, he's played three years in the NFL. He's been a starter for two years. Last year and his first year as a starter was the NFL MVP. This past year, he was just the Super Bowl MVP. What's going to happen now? Is he going to sign the biggest contract in NFL history? That's a possibility. Maybe all he does is stay on the contract he's already in and signs his fifth-year option and continues moving down the road and does what he's already doing. And maybe he signs a smaller deal worth maybe $25, $28 million rather than going trying to get the biggest contract of all time. I've been waiting for a long time to see a quarterback other than Tom Brady take a pay cut in order to have better teammates and try to win. I think Patrick Mahomes might just be the first guy to do that in a long time other than Tom Brady. That's what I'm so, so excited to see. Number five, who are the Jacksonville Jaguars going to commit to as their quarterback? It's a very simple question. It's either Nick Foles or Gardner Minshew. And Gardner Minshew was a starter at the end of the year. And in my opinion, Gardner Minshew is the better quarterback between the two. If it were me, I would commit to Gardner Minshew. But I'm just curious what happens in Jacksonville with their quarterback situation. And then number six, there's a lot of quarterback movement that's coming up ahead. Uh, We're going to see Teddy Bridgewater potentially move around. We're going to see... Andy Dalton, Marcus Mariota, Phillip Rivers. Where are these quarterbacks going to end up next season? Those are the things I'm so, so excited to watch moving forward, upcoming in the NFL offseason. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. Thank you so very much for tuning in. I want to end the show with one topic I always do. 
Um, you know, today is technically February 7th, which means that tomorrow is February 8th. Uh, four years ago tomorrow, my younger brother took his life. He committed suicide. And uh, it was heartbreaking. It's one of the, it's, it is the hardest thing I've ever been through. And through that experience, I learned two really painful lessons when my brother took his life. Number one is that if you're struggling, please go get help. My brother never shared his struggles. He suffered in silence. Uh, one day I came home, he was dead on the floor. He took his life and I had no idea that was coming. I, I, I mean, how do you prepare for that? You don't. Um, but I had no idea he was even having a hard time. And so I encourage you. Um, I, I, first of all, people say one of the media standards in the world is that you got to talk about the suicide hotline if you mention suicide. So the suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255. The suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255. But I encourage you, man, if you're struggling, go get help. Talk to someone in your life, your friends, your family, as counselor at school or uh, anybody. Talk to a person of authority. Go get professional help. If you're having a hard time, you're really depressed and you're thinking about suicide, go get help. I'm begging you. Don't do what my brother did. My brother just left. And I, I don't want you to leave. I want you here. I want everybody here on planet earth. And so I, I'm begging you, if you're struggling, please go get help. And number two, um, this is, you know, the other painful lesson I learned is that I didn't do a good enough job making it clear to my brother. I was there for him, that I cared about him. Uh, I encourage you tell the people in your life how much you love them. Give them a hug. Tell them you care about them. Um, you know, my brother and I worked together. I saw him almost every day. I saw him at least once a week because we played Halo once a week. I, I drove to his house and we played Halo together. And um, my brother and I talked about video games and movies and sports and girls. And we never really had conversations with a ton of depth. And I regret that so much. My brother had a philosophy journal. He was really a cool guy. And I wish I'd known that side of him and I didn't. And that's on me. I wasn't comfortable having conversations with a lot of depth. And so I encourage you if you're out there, have those conversations. Tell the people in your life to love them. Appreciate those moments. And just make sure the people in your life know how much you care about them, that you're there for them if they're having a hard time. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. It's very early in the morning. It is uh, it's 2.04 in the morning. It, I'm exhausted. I'm ready to go to bed. And so thank you so much. Have a great day. And ba-dum-bum, bam, we are done.